Good morning, church family. We are at the midway point of our Advent series, Longing for the King and His Kingdom. And so where Advent is normally or often a time of looking at the ways in which Jesus fulfills promises of the Old Testament and longings are met in Him, we are this Advent looking at what promises in the Word of God are we still longing for to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ? What is unfulfilled? What are our hopes? What are we longing for? And so we looked at the first week at longing for judgment of the living and the dead. And we said that even though it was a very sobering reality, that it was one that we hoped for because it would mean the end of evil as we know it and of rebellion against God. Last week, Pastor Gina led us in a sermon on longing for the judgment of the kingdom of darkness. So instead of the, the first week was looking at human rebellion against God, the second week, last week, was looking at what is underneath that. Powers and principalities in the spirit realm, fallen angels, says the Bible, that rebel against God and stir and stimulate human rebellion against God and human deception and that they too will be judged and removed as God creates new heavens and a new earth. This morning, we are looking at longing for the day when every knee bows before Jesus Christ and everyone on the earth exalts the name of Jesus as Lord. So I'm going to read a series of scriptures. I apologize that they're not on the PowerPoint. Uh, And they will come from, well, a number of different places. And as I read them, uh, I will stop at a few points to make some comments and then tell you what our theme again will be when we get to the end. So these first two scriptures come from Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. If you're not familiar, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, is a series of visions that were given to the Apostle John, one of the twelve, when he's exiled on the island of Patmos. So he's being imprisoned and kept away from the majority of the church for his faith. And all of Christendom, in fact, is undergoing great persecution and the Lord gives these visions to John on the island. Revelation 4.11, John is seeing a vision of the throne room of God in heaven, and he sees angels worshiping and elders worshiping, and Chess read from this in worship. It says that they declared, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, And by your will, they were created and have their being. Then in Revelation 5, and this is John's voice now. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Can you imagine? They encircled the throne 
and the living creatures and the elders, in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Worthy. So this is the vision that Jesus gives John of what's happening in heaven. And now listen to this. Jesus teaches us as his disciples to pray. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Turning back to the Old Testament, prophet Isaiah, who also sees vision of God, proclaims these words, and they are the Lord's words. It's meaning that it's God's voice speaking them, okay, not Isaiah. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. From one new moon to another, that's one month to another, And from one Sabbath to another, that's one week to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Paul, in his letter to the church in Philippi, quotes Isaiah, and he says, Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Paul, at the end of his letter to the Corinthians, is describing the end in a, in a couple of paragraphs, he's talking about the resurrection, he's teaching, he says to the Corinthians, then the end will come when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he, Jesus, has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And that's a quote from Psalm 110. That he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. It's quoted all through the New Testament. I want to stop and say something here about this verse in 1 Corinthians. You you notice if you... I'll just read it slowly again. Jesus will hand the kingdom that he now reigns over. We believe he's the rightful reigning king of this world. He'll hand the kingdom over to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. What does that mean? 
It means that there are still thrones, there are still rulers, there's still dominion, authority, and power in this world that does not exalt or acknowledge God. That does not exalt or acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. So what you see here, and then it says, for he must reign until he's put, put all his enemies underneath his feet. What you see here is that there's a process that needs to unfold. I want to say something about this because I think that we as Christians, and I'm, I'm thinking this from my own experience, but also from listening to and talking to people, that there's enough uncertainty about how the end will go because of the various passages about the end of, of times spread throughout scripture not being the easiest to understand, that we sometimes take them all in our mind, lump them together, and think it's all gonna happen sorta Right there when Jesus comes back, it'll just happen and because, because in the flash of an eye, the twinkling of an eye, we'll get resurrected and get resurrection bodies, says 1 Corinthians. He'll come back instantly. He'll come back and people won't be, won't be expecting him. So we tend to, I think tend, you can disagree, but I think we tend to sort of lump it all together and that it's gonna all instantaneously happen. But the pictures that the scripture presents are more of a process unfolding after he comes back. That there's going to be, and I'll say a little bit more about this in the sermon, Revelation talks about this, that there's going to be a process of where, of, of ingathering of those who then acknowledge Jesus and judgment upon those who won't. And that in that process is where Jesus comes to exert the reign and the rule of God on earth. Let me say something really clearly. Heaven is not my home and it's not yours either. We go to heaven, the realm of the spirit where God is, when we die. That's not our eternal destiny. The scriptures from beginning to end paint a picture of new or renewed heavens and earth. Cleansed. Like they say it's going to go through the purifying fire of judgment, a refining fire. That's to cleanse it. Okay? Jesus is coming back to cleanse the earth, to rid it of evil and of rebellion against God. And there's a process that needs to unfold. Let me read the last scripture. Revelation 5:13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and glory forever and ever. That's the end of the story. That's the end of the picture. Revelation 513. The rest of the book of Revelation unfolds. How does that happen? But that's the end. That's the picture Jesus is giving John exiled on the island is that one day, there'll come a day when every creature, everything that has breath, that's where the Psalms end too. Everything that has breath praises the Lord. Everything on the earth, under the earth, in the sea, they're all singing to the Lamb, be praise and glory and honor forever and ever. So here's the theme of this message and the thing that we're longing for. Jesus Christ will subdue the earth until finally 
all mankind will worship and adore him alone. And I chose that word subdue intentionally because that was the task or the calling that was given to the first Adam and his bride. And they failed. And where they failed, the scriptures call Jesus the second Adam. He and his bride with him will not. The earth will be subdued and all will give glory to the Lord. All right. Now I'll start preaching. I'm just kidding. I'm already preaching. I, I was daydreaming this week. Happens sometimes. And, uh, I was daydreaming about, you might think this is strange, cause, cause you, none, if you know my wife Anne, you don't think, nobody here could think that anybody wouldn't like her. But I was just daydreaming. What, what would, what would it feel like? For me, if like a particular group of people in my life didn't really didn't like my wife. Like, what if I had a group of friends that basically just rejected her? Or what if like what if a whole what if my family did not like my wife? What would that feel like for me every time I wanted to go and be with that group of friends or be with my family or I thought, what about, what about the church that I serve? Like, what if the church I served rejected my wife? And I was in the middle of daydreaming about this, and all of a sudden it occurred to me, I've got really good friends that just experienced this last year. A friend of mine is a pastor in a, in, uh, on the eastern part of the United States, and he'd been in a church for about three or four years, and it was not a particularly healthy church. And um, the council began to turn against him, the councils, the group of elders, uh, in a very, very painful and dysfunctional way. They just began to reject him and his ministry. And it wasn't sort of instantaneous. It played out over the course of a year to a year and a half. And so things weren't being spoken out in front of the congregation, but the whole group of leaders was rejecting him. And so I walked with him through this. And what was so painful was um, almost more than for him, for his wife. Because she had to go to worship and be with this group of people that were rejecting her husband. And it got so painful for her that she couldn't go anymore. It hurt so bad that she could not go to worship. She couldn't be there. And uh, I, I think I think most of us in here have some... A semblance or iota of some some idea of what that kind of grief is like to love somebody and to whether it's we experiencing rejection or it's somebody we love that's being rejection rejected but what i want to what i want to say about that this morning is that kind of grief that's ours that's our grief as the body of christ that's our pain to love somebody and to have them be rejected. To love someone and have them be rejected without even being known. The Bible, Paul, as he's writing to the Ephesians, he's talking about husbands and wives and he's telling them how they ought to treat each other. Wives love your husbands and this and husbands love your wives and that. And then he says, for in the beginning, God said a man shall leave his wife and become the, leave his parents home and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this is a great mystery 
but I'm talking about Christ and the church. We're married. To the Corinthians, he says, don't you know that those of us who are in the Lord, who are one with Him, are joined to Him, we're one spirit with Him? And so there's grief when the one that you love is being rejected. This is Isaiah's grief. I read you these words from Isaiah. What what many of you will know is that Isaiah chapter 6 talks about a vision that Isaiah had. He says, in the year that King Isaiah died, I had a vision of the Lord in his temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And that vision cast Isaiah down onto his knees, seeing the Lord brought him to his knees. And he said, Lord, woe am I. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm dirty and I'm among a people of unclean lips. And then the Lord had an angel take something from an altar and touch his lips. And in a moment, Isaiah experienced the grace of the Lord. You were unclean, but I burned it away. And Isaiah, who had this profound encounter with God, then he was, he said, the Lord said, Who shall I send to talk to my people? And Isaiah says, send me, send me, send me. Because he had an experience or an encounter. He knew God. He had revelation of what God was like. He he found himself in the presence of the God of the universe. And he was loved. And he was accepted. And he was healed. And he was commissioned. And then you know what happened? Then he had the joy and the pain of telling people for 30, 40, 50 years. And Isaiah, who was caught up into the presence of the Lord and knew what he was like, lost his wife. Did you know that he went around naked for three years? Was ridiculed? Was misunderstood? was treated like a fool. The same Isaiah that says, one day every knee will bow before this God is watching the gods of the nations seemingly win out as his people are trampled on and taken off into exile. And those gods are getting exalted. They're mocking Israel saying, huh! Your God not going to save you. But Isaiah, he's seen, he's experienced, he knows. Same thing for the Apostle John. John, you'll remember, is the disciple who Jesus loved. He's the one who laid his head on Jesus' breast, his chest at dinner. He's the one who was in Jesus' inner circle and walked closely with Jesus as he saw Jesus touching Healing, saving, delivering. He experienced the glory of God in Jesus. He saw that there wasn't one person that came to Jesus with faith that got turned away. He became a follower and a worshiper. And he's worshiping and he's caught up in his worship. He's caught up into the presence of the Lord. And he has a series of visions
And in his visions, he sees that one day everything on earth and under the earth and in the heavens will all sing this song. To him who's on the throne, praise, glory, glory. You ever have an experience with the Lord that's like a mountaintop experience? You encounter him, he encounters you in some way, it fills you, and then you have to go back to ordinary everyday life. What do you think John went back to? John went back to a prison cell. John went back to an empire in which they were burning Christians for torches on street corners and feeding them to lions. And it doesn't look like at all like what Isaiah and John say are going to happen are going to happen. In fact, instead of this Jesus whom they love and want to worship receiving glory, glory's going to the mighty strong Roman Empire. Glory's going to the gods and goddesses in Ephesus and Corinth and Thessalonica. Glory is going to many places but Jesus. And so, this is the story. This is this, this is the story or the question or the dilemma or the grief that the church lives with down through the ages. Is this really true? Is Jesus really going to be worshiped and adored and reverenced for who he is? Who's winning? Who's really going to win? Who's the victor? Because those, those experiences of Isaiah and John were just the beginning of the suffering witness of the church. You know that in this century, more Christians have been martyred for their faith than the previous 19 put together the last 100 years? Anybody, you know that? All over the world right now. Whether it's, and this is the minority, bullets spraying in North American churches or bombs blowing up in Egyptian churches or heads being severed from Iraqi Christians or people being taken out back and beaten in India and Afghanistan and all across the Middle East because they've betrayed their Muslim or other religious roots. But it's not just out there. It's not just in the other countries of the world. We experience this too. I think about First Peter that says how we love Jesus and we're filled with this glorious and inexpressible joy even though we don't see him. And there's this Jesus is such a treasure. The Lord is such a treasure and to us, and but we also have have a sense of his worth. You know, I, some of you sitting here this morning won't have a sense of his worth. I'm aware of that. Some of us are skimming the surface. Some of us maybe have prayed a prayer at one point in time, but 
um, Jesus doesn't isn't worth a whole lot to us. We don't we aren't aware of his worth. But but uh, for you, if that's your your you're sitting here this morning, then you, there's an invitation for you to come and know the worth of the Lord. But for many of us here, we've spent time just gazing, just marveling, just meditating. Who are you, God, that you create all things? By your word, all things came into being. And that we who are like ants on the ground, grass in the field, and rebel against you, you don't squash us. You don't just away with us. Actually, you say that such deep love for us you have that you will become one of us. Who are you? Who are you, God, that you love so deeply? What kind of a king are you? What kind of a being are you? That, that mystery should never stop drawing our adoration, our love, our exclamations of worship. That He would become one of us. That He would incarnate. That He would suffer and die. That He would give Himself. That this self-giving love at the center of the universe is real. Every day, that mystery should nurture and nourish us. Every day, afresh, we should worship the Lord for who He is. And many of us do. And when you live with that kind of an awareness of the goodness of God, and not just the goodness and the love, but the worthiness to be worshipped and reverenced for who He is. This is why it says we lay our crowns at His feet. We give all honor to Him. Crowns are things... You get a crown when you get a victory. You achieve something. Kings get a crown when they conquer. So in this life, we're not all kings, but we conquer things. We achieve things. We get honor. We take that honor. It's real. And we give it to the Lord. We place it at his feet. Everything. Every day we honor him for who he is. Now, living in that place, and I know some of you are being invited to that place. Some of you are on the way. Some of you are living there. But living with this sense of who God is. How horrible is it to hear the name of Jesus being used as a swear word, a byword, scoffed at, rejected, to call people to faith in him and have them not even want to hear or listen, to know the inestimable value of the Son of God and and to, to face that rejection over and over again, the scoffing. Okay? This is grief. This is grief. And uh, the... It's a kind of suffering. It's not the same as losing your life, but it's on the way. Because what Revelation paints for us is a picture, many pictures, but a picture of being willing to suffer as a witness to the truth. That's what it's encouraging the church in. 
faithfulness, steadfast endurance, faithfulness, as we suffer as witnesses to the truth. What's Jesus' name in, in Revelation? The faithful and true witness. He witnesses to the Lord up to the point of his own death. The saints in Revelation witness to the Lord to the point of their own death. We pray to the Lord. We don't have to lose our lives, but we witness to him in everything, everywhere, up to being willing to give our own life because of his value. And again, the question that's at the heart of Revelations is this, and these are not my words. Is the world a place in which military and political might carries all? Or is it one in which the suffering witness to the truth prevails in the end? Because when you look at this world, it looks like political and military might carry the day. In Revelation, that was the beast, Rome. There's the dragon. If you're familiar, there's the dragon and the beast and the harlot. Sort of a trinity of evil. The dragon is Satan. The beast is Rome, the Roman Empire. The harlot, the prostitute, is the world system of values demonically inspired which draws honor away from the true and living God and his son Jesus Christ and to itself and to the devil ultimately and so you look and you and I look around at this world and the political and military might seems to be carrying the day in many 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 places oppression reigns And the harlot seems to be carrying the day in many, many places. The name of Jesus is not loved, not honored, not valued. And so the question at the heart of Revelation is, what, who will ultimately get the honor? Who will rule? Who will carry the day? And the answer is not only that there will be a great reversal, which you all, we all believe is coming. But the answer is that actually that reversal will take place in part through the suffering witness of the saints. That is, the saints continue to embody within themselves this willingness to honor Jesus, to love him, to stand up for him and his truth at, at any and all costs. That the Lord will work through that to bring about this reversal. So, I don't have time to go into it right now, but uh, John in Revelation actually depicts that in the in the end, when Jesus returns, there's going to be an ingathering of the lost. There'll be a great harvest, and he says the thing that will lead to the harvest is the witness of the church. And at the heart of that witness of the church isn't just faithfulness. It's faithful worship, faithful love, faithful adoration. Because you can be, Revelation 3 tells us, you can be faithful and dead. 
You can be lukewarm. You can be cold. Or you can be ablaze with love for Jesus Christ and hunger and thirst and desire to see him known, to see him receive the glory and the honor that are due his name. And so I think that in this word from the Lord this morning, there is, there is both wonderful news that's not new news, and there's challenge. The news is that Jesus Christ, and he won't do this through our efforts, he'll use us, this isn't dependent on us, but he will subdue. And he will one day be valued and honored and bowed down before by everything on this earth. He'll be loved even as he loves. And God will be all in all. Why is that such good news? Well, it's only really good news. It's good news to the degree that you love him and know him now. If you love Jesus now and want him to be known, then your life is singing a song. But your life is singing that song amidst a cacophony of other songs. And that produces discord. Right? You've all had that experience of watching a movie and they use Jesus' name the wrong way and you feel it. Grieves you. That's just one little experience. So there won't be that anymore. There'll be like, it's like the, all I can describe it as is there are these moments in our worship services here where we are all caught up in the spirit together and our voices sound to, they blend like one in our worship of the Lord. And it's just the sweetest, fullest harmonic, the sweetest, fullest. Because he's getting all that he's due and we're being filled in the process. When you live alive and full of worship for the glory of God and you pour out, you get filled. Okay? This is what it means for God to be all in all. So it's good news, but it's also challenge and invitation. Because I'll be honest with you, as I thought about preparing this message, a part of where I really struggled was, Lord, I'm not sure how much we as your church really do long for this day. I'm not, how much, I'm not sure how much longing we have. And that longing is, I think, measured by mental, emotional, spiritual time and energy that gets given toward it. I'm not sure how much we think about it, how much we pray about it, how much we hope for it. And I just wonder how much, again, and this is a theme in the series, but how much haven't we just sort of settled for the best of, the best that we can make in this world? And the Lord calls us. Don't settle. Don't settle because it leaves you emptier than I want you to be. And it leaves less of a witness to my glory and my honor. 
So this, I believe, is invitation from the Lord. And I want to end um, by going into worship in a in a, a different way than just singing the song of response. There's a song that I came across this week and couldn't stop playing. It's called Jesus, There's No One Like You by Sovereign Grace Music. And I'm going to ask Mark to play it in just a minute. And I'm going to invite us to be drawn into uh, just heartfelt love and worship of Jesus. And uh, you, you can express that any way you desire, whether it's on your knees or in front of the cross or standing up, any way you want. But just let's just honor the Lord again. Um, and let's ask him to deepen our love and our honor for him because you know what? We are the embodiment of what's to come. We are the place on earth that shines with what's coming. And we were singing that earlier. We were calling to the earth. Crown him with many crowns. Let all the nations come. Let the kings bow down. We're that place. And so let's let's burn brightly. Let's let the Holy Spirit, as we meditate on who the Lord is, just fill us ongoingly with this love and this adoration for the king who will be exalted. Would you play that, Mark? And Ray, would you flick the lights off so we can see it? There's going to be lyrics on the PowerPoint. And uh, Marissa, you'd come up and uh, after this song, lead us into the next song. Thank you.